there. You're listening to Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And we are here every other week to talk about streaming movies, series, and everything in between. On this episode of Film Spotting SVU, we'll be getting both paranoid about and choked up over The Iron Giant. The 1999 animated film from director Brad Bird that's been on our mind for reasons beyond just the fact that it was recently added on Netflix. Yep, Bird's got a new movie in theater soon, Incredibles 2. And more importantly, The Iron Giant recently featured prominently, and not without some controversy, in Steven Spielberg's reference-heavy Ready Player One, which turned the pacifist character into the avatar of someone using it pretty much as a laser-eyed killing machine. And boy, are there people on the internet that do not like it when you point out that irony. Well, rather than turn the second half of this episode over to retorts to you haters, Allison, as you suggested, we're going to accentuate the positive and recommend some other movies that get referenced in Ready Player One, all available to rent or stream at home right now. And maybe we'll get to some discussion of Spielberg's latest while we're at it, too. But first, let's talk The Iron Giant. ago, SATCOM radar detected an unidentified object entering Earth's atmosphere. Invaders from Mars! Some assumed it was a large meteor or a downed satellite. This is no meteor, gentlemen. <gasps> this is something much more dangerous. So... I guess you're not gonna hurt me, huh? This is unbelievable. This is the greatest discovery since television or something. Hey, big metal guy! I got food here for you! My own giant robot. I am now the luckiest kid in America! Banzai! Here's how things work here at Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. You, the listener, tell us what you'd like us to review next. At the end of each episode, we give you three different films or shows and let you vote on which one you'd like to hear us talk about. Last time, your choices were Brad Bird's The Iron Giant, recently added to Netflix, Derek Comedy's Mystery Team on Amazon, and the 80s cult favorite Night of the Comet on Tubi TV. And while the Iron Giant and Mystery Team were neck and neck for most of the period the poll was running, Donald Glover's comedy couldn't beat out the animated behemoth. It's worth noting that when it came out in 1999, the Iron Giant was a huge critical hit and a box office flop. Uh, People just didn't have a lot of interest in this movie at the time about this boy and his robot, this adventure taking place during the Cold War in the 1950s. The film was Brad Bird's directorial debut. He'd come up as an animator at Disney in the 80s, and then he'd worked on and helped shape the look of The Simpsons during its first eight years. Um, The Iron Giant shows an interest in this kind of throwback sci-fi that would go on to inform uh, a lot of Bird's later work. You know, you can think of the mid-century modern stylings of The Incredibles, or the kind of nostalgic optimism for the future that's in Tomorrowland. Uh, but the Iron Giant is where it all began with a boy named Hogarth Hughes. What a name to be saddled with, uh, encountering a massive metal eating robot from space in the woods outside of his small main town. The robot voiced by Vin Diesel is a uh, really lovable childlike, uh, and extremely weaponized. Uh, he usually doesn't mean to cause the sometimes large scale destruction he can be prone to. Uh, but he does end up on the radar of a government agent named Kent Mansley, voiced by Christopher McDonald, whose insistence on protecting the country sometimes seems more like a hunger for war. Uh, there's also Hogarth's mom, a waitress at the local diner, who's voiced by Jennifer Aniston. And there's also the town beatnik, uh, voiced by Harry Connick Jr. But mostly, the film is about Hogarth and the giant, who form a sweet bond of trust at a time when everyone else is feeling paranoid, doubting each other, and sure they're about to get attacked. Uh, like many children's movies, The Iron Giant has a message. Uh, unlike many children's movies, that message is not one about self-acceptance or loving yourself or believing in yourself, being kind to others. It is explicitly anti-violence. 
guns kill and you don't have to be a gun hogarth tells a giant after they witness a deer being killed by hunters in the woods and basically teaches the giant about death matt it pains me to say this uh, but watching this movie i could not help but think that if the iron giant came out in 2018 yes it would not struggle to get press coverage Mm, i was Uh, thinking this too go ahead this is a message that certain outlets Mm. uh, would use as an enraged talking point for days oh yeah yeah so i guess my question for you is like how radical do you feel it is to have this as the message uh, of a children's film it's funny. I thought the exact same thing. I was like, if this movie came out now, there would be Twitter protests. There would be angry right-wing uh, Twitter users who would devote weeks of their life to like destroying this movie. The NRA, the NRA would would, go would, up would be would organize a boycott of Warner Brothers Studio for this incredibly heartfelt, beautiful animated movie. For sure. Like, there's no doubt in my mind. And I, honestly, I you know I had not seen this movie in a very long time. I had to be reminded after I had seen Ready Player One that that it was about a character who is a pacifist or like learns to be a pacifist or to embrace love and and, and friendship and all those sorts of things. I didn't really remember that he wasn't like an evil killbot. Uh, that, <laughs> that that had eluded me. So rewatching it, the first thing that struck me was just how kind of radical in and of itself it was to see this little boy running around with a gun. How we wouldn't like no movie studio would go near that image in 2018. And then of course we see that that's a very deliberately chosen image because this movie is all about guns and about violence and as you said like choosing not to be a gun choosing not to uh, embrace violence choosing to reject those impulses so yeah it it's it's pretty radical i mean it's funny how i don't remember it being considered that way in 1999 i, I remember it being you know sort of this cult movie that came and went very quickly in theaters but with but within a year or two had sort of already accrued this reputation at the time it was mostly on vhs I mean, DVD was barely even a thing at that point as this sort of very beautiful, almost like too beautiful for this world studio film. Yep. But now in 2018, it genuinely does look like a like a radical film. I think that's the perfect word for it. I was sitting there watching it on, on Netflix going, no one would make this movie today. And not because it's a little bit of a bummer at the end, uh, but because of the, 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 the themes, the ideas in it. Yeah, it is. It's funny to say that a movie that is kind of anti-violence is it's like a wild (laughs) thing to say but it is it's specifically anti-violence within the context of weapons as well and it's not it's not subtext it's text that's the thing it's not like you could read this as a story about guns or something it is foregrounded in the film it is about guns and weapons and violence yeah uh and it it you know i think this movie is so kind of emotionally like uh devastating and just emotionally kind of rich uh, it's a, it's a really simple story, really. Like, which was like the surprise to me rewatching it is how kind of uh, how few developments there were. Mm-hmm. You know that there it, that it's very straightforward, uh, and yet I, I think that like that ending works so incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was, and yet it did feel shocking. I don't think like certainly the movie hasn't changed since then, right? But we have changed in how we talk about media and what we tolerate in terms of uh of messaging and what people get very angry about now right um i was was kind of heartening to me like to see something that took such a like explicit stroke uh, explicit message and especially in a kid's film right i I don't think that saying you know violence (laughs) violence is bad (laughs) that like death is a part of life yes but violence is bad causing the choice yes yeah uh it's it's kind of what a despicable person brad bird is to (laughs) to voice these messages and brainwash our children yeah well and also to it i had forgotten this but the they show the duck and cover video like the version of the duck and cover video and Mm -hmm. the kind of like deep irony to it like obviously there were real duck and cover videos and there were real public service messages that uh informed people to do doomed things that would not help them if they were directly hit by a nuclear bomb (laughs) but I, i think it's a pretty like dark image to include in a children's film oh yeah uh, even if uh, a child might not fully understand the context of what they're being taught. I think they get away with it because I don't think a child would understand it uh, today, then or today. I think that's one thing that is specifically there for the adults in the, in the room. The parents are going to get that, but the children, 
I think for the most part that would go over their heads. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't shown, I didn't show this movie to my daughter. Um, do you think she's I, not, do you think she would not be able to, she definitely it? would, she wouldn't grasp that part for no, sure. I like, mean, the story, I, th- I don't know. It's a good question. I think, she, I, I don't know if she'd be able to handle emotionally the ending, even though it has that sweet, coda right that sort of twist where it's not quite as despairing as it seems for a few minutes i do sort of i I do sort of um i don't know i I don't think she's i don't think she's ready for the iron giant just yet yeah it is and i i know that like bird has made this explicit comparison but uh it is very et like uh, even in the in the the sad ending that's saved uh at the very end right but um yeah, I mean that relationship. There's, I mean, it's very. There's something very kind of classic of this. It's a boy and his kind of like monster, his outsized uh, friend, otherworldly friend. Uh, but I do, I love the giant. Like the giant is so endearing. Yep. And this like gravelly Vin Diesel voice, uh, distorted. You know, uh, being explained the difference between rocks and trees mm-hmm. is like just. It's so to have this creature that uh whose like destructive powers are never softened like it's even when before he reveals the fact that he turns into a horrifying weapon when threatened like he causes all kinds of huge damage (laughs) just by being large and not not on purpose yeah but he's so cute (laughs) he he is cute and he's also i thought incredibly well animated the stiffness of him the the you feel the weight of him and the way that he lumbers through the forest and the sound design the way that you know you're mentioning how he's called Causing all this damage, the the just the bangs and the way the the he, the ground shakes when he walks because he's so heavy and the stiffness in his joints and uh, yeah, just every, and the way that he moves through the space. I mean, for an animated movie, a two D animated movie, I just you know where so much of. 2D animation traditionally that we think of, we think of, you know, Disney cartoons and Looney Tunes where nothing has like physics. Everything is elastic and bendy and stretchy and, you know, you, the roadrunner can throw the coyote off the cliff and, it not, you know, it doesn't mean anything. And there's a, such a weight and a presence to the Iron Giant. Like I don't – I can't really think of too many other animated movies, I guess 2D or 3D, where like the characters have such a weight to them. And I really appreciated that this time rewatching it is that 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 the character is so beautifully designed and then so beautifully executed in the way that it moves. I mean, rewatching this movie, my only complaint was it's too short. You mentioned it's under 90 minutes and it happens very quickly. Yeah. And I just I mean, it's it's a it's like a perfect little nugget of a movie. But I I get what's that expression? You know, no good movie is too long. No Mm -hmm. bad movie is too short. I would have I would love if this movie was 15 minutes longer and we could just see one extra scene with all the characters and all their relationships like more of the giant and and Hogarth more of Hogarth's mom who I think is a really interesting character who doesn't really get a ton of screen time more of the beatnik mm-hmm. you know more of all and all their relationships like everything works everything makes sense it's not like you can't buy anything or anything happens too quickly but i feel like the movie would be even more of a gut punch even more emotionally moving if we got like 10 15 more minutes with these characters to really like just soak in the world and the relationships and watch them sort of grow over time well you only really get this one the sequence where they're swimming is like the real moment in which the the movie relaxes into these characters just hanging out. Yeah. And it's it's a wonderful scene. Um but you're right, it doesn't it doesn't get a lot of time to really allow them to just spend time together before right. the plot is in motion. It's a lot of plot in it this is. movie. Yeah. I mean, for a very short movie and it's almost all plot. I think you pinpointed like one of the few scenes where we're just allowed to enjoy the relationship between the boy and the iron giant where i think most people watching it would gladly take like three or four more scenes just of that yeah uh i wanted to talk a little bit about i mean this movie plays as i mentioned before bird has this real interest in like maybe a 50s idea of the future I think it's clearly like 50 sci-fi, retro sci-fi is his like favorite sensibility. And, you know, this movie plays into a lot of kind of like classical Americana, like this l- idyllic small town. Yep. It's very autumnal. It's, it's called Rockwell. I don't think that's an Rockwell, accident. Maine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very Norman Rockwell uh, that, that has, um, you know, the town oddballs and all of that, but it's still like a community and... Uh, it's I, like I the think, Andy Griffith show. Yes. Uh, and then at the same time, the robot is also an image out of like kind of a classic 
classic, uh, you know, in this case, like a robot attacking, right? This, mm-hmm. um, I, I just like, I do appreciate the ways in which he uses this imagery and understands where it like fits in our kind of like collective nostalgia so well. And, and yet, uh, also pokes at it a bit, you know, uh, the, the character in this, the villain in this is, uh, yeah, another kind of wholesome seeming, you know, character, this, uh, government guy who, uh, wants to be everyone's friend, but is also this warmongering, uh, <laughs> Kent Mansley. Yes. Perfectly cast Christopher McDonald, shooter McGavin, so excellent yeah. voice. Yeah. I don't always love like birds effect, like kind of interest in, I, I think like Tomorrowland was maybe the movie that really tested, uh, how you feel about birds affection for retro futurism. Right. Uh, but I think that like in this movie in particular, he uses it so well. He just likes the look of all of this, the, the kind of, and the feel of that, uh, kind of vision of the future so much. He has an aesthetic. There's no question about it. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with that. And I also agree that Tomorrowland is kind of insufferable. I mean, yes. it's it's an incredibly, like, ambitious movie. And it's like, it's a hard movie to dislike. And yet, I dislike it. I dislike it, too. Yes. Um, <laughs> which is sort of interesting in and of itself. But you're right. It is. They are all of a piece in terms of he's fascinated with the past's vision of the future. And this sort of collision between, I mean, in this movie, it's crystal clear. This collision between this sort of very nostalgic Americana was a word used, which I absolutely think I, you know, came to my mind watching it. This kind of idyllic version of Americana, butting up against these sort of different ideas about who we are as a society or as a nation or as a culture. I mean, in this movie, it's very much about like these this collision between this idyllic Americana and also this paranoia, this fear of the other, of the unknown, you know, and how these things basically coexisted in the 1950s in our in this country but like when we remember them we remember them as like two separate things and this movie is trying to reconcile them and remember them together and also you have the beatnik like you know there are other characters who could have been an outsider it's very consciously choosing to have this character be a beatnik to like uh as a reminder that also the 50s give way to the 60s and Mm -hmm. all the kind of uh, upheaval and social unrest and kind of like social change that came at that time right uh and so it's like all kind of they're complicating uh what is you know supposed to be this very nostalgic uh portrait of a town Mm -hmm. yeah and you can see some of that in the incredibles also i was gonna say the incredibles too now i have to be more specific the incredibles comma two (laughs) Um, in terms of it's again, it's like mid-century modern. It's this you know classical vision with a but kind of a futuristic spy movie kind of a energy chrome, to it. A little, a little yeah. chrome, yeah. And it's 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 sort of like the again like the past's vision of the future. And that in that movie, it's kind of going up against I don't know you know government meddling or government uh, overregulation or whatever you want to say. Um, there's that whole subplot in that movie about, you know, if everyone is special, then no one is, which, you know, became very controversial. But yeah, it's, it's definitely something that he's kind of returned to again and again. Um, maybe to some degree with diminishing returns. I'm not sure he's ever made a better movie as much as I love the first Incredibles. And yeah. even his Mission Impossible movie is a lot of fun too, sure. which is also like a 60s vision of the yep. future in a way. Um, while I like all those movies, I'm not sure he's made ever made anything sort of more perfect in its own little 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 way. It's it is it does feel like kind of a little movie than uh, the Iron Giant. Yeah, it's pretty wonderful. So having gone back and looked at it again, yes. How did you feel about how the Iron Giant is deployed in Ready Player One? Oh, it's a complete disgrace. <laughs> it is absolutely a betrayal, 100. Yes. percent I and like I said, when I saw the movie, it's been so long since I'd seen the Iron Giant that it it literally didn't phase me at all. I thought, oh wow, it's cool to see the Iron Giant. Look at him go. He's you know, it's kind of fun. It's part of this whole crazy battle. No problems with it whatsoever. Now I'm sitting here like retroactively stewing, going, <laughs> that was awful. How could Steven like? It is a betrayal of like I don't. Does Steven Spielberg have beef? with brad bird it does it feels like there's something there where you kind of wonder it's not just a character who's like incongruous in right. this world it is really like a fundamental choice going against the message of the movie right i mean the only thing you can say is that there is that subtext in ready player one about creations and their creators and the question of what happens when someone creates something and lets it go 
and what happens to it then. And you could argue that the <laughs> most painful depiction of that in the movie is the Iron Giant because it is made by someone other than its creator and uh, it, it is a complete just mockery of what the movie is about. <laughs> and so in a way it's 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 kind of horrifying and in a way it's kind of poignant and maybe speaking to the themes of the movie. I don't know if I – totally buy that but that's sort of the devil devil's advocate argument i could make for it yeah fair enough all right well if you too want to re-examine your feelings about either the iron giant or or just cry used, yes or just cry because it's always good for a cry i definitely cried Superman. Uh, oh god uh the iron giant <laughs> is streaming on netflix Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, so let's talk about some other movies that are referenced in Ready Player One. Actually, let's talk about all the movies re- referenced in Ready Player One. Let's do an just- 18-hour podcast. <laughs> Systematically go through them all. I've read multiple lists. Uh, there are different ones to different degrees of yes. like explanation and exhaustion. Yes. Um, Yes, and there are like many in there that I, I was like I didn't catch that at all. We did we did a list, a video list you can find at youtube.com slash screen crush where basically me and my video editor both individually saw the movie and wrote down every one we could find. And it's long. It's like we found like I don't know, seventy references and it's like a ten minute long video. And then I was looking uh today. To, or I guess a couple of days ago to find movies to talk about, looking to see what my options were for this podcast. I'm like, oh, I didn't see that reference. Oh, yep. I didn't see that. And there was like at least 10 that I didn't catch. And yeah. I caught like dozens and dozens and dozens. <laughs> so what I'm saying is Ready Player One is a masterpiece, Allison, <laughs> because I value movies based on how much they reference other movies. I think the weird thing about Ready Player One, and I've talked about it on this podcast briefly, but you have not yet. You hadn't seen it at the time. Okay. Uh, that is that it it suggests that there's the world uh it not it's not just that the this world is filled with references but that in some ways references are almost all people can make it feels like there's nothing new anymore or nothing original mm. that the world is like told entirely through references to other things uh that's the strangest thing to me about the iron giant being used as a uh, an avatar it's not just that it was someone who's clearly either ignored the context of <laughs> of the movie or really like to kind of spite the context of the movie. Yeah. Um, but it, is that like, why would someone want the Iron Giant? Like, it just, you know, I'm just like... If you I, love the Iron Giant, what you don't want out of the Iron Giant is to use him as a death laser. Right. You would want to like play with him. Yes. And like go to the, and go to the lake and be, yes. have him be your friend. And yeah, exactly. Like watch him chew metal, I guess. Right. You wouldn't necessarily want to use him to destroy uh, Mecha Godzilla. Yeah. Let's say. And as a hypothetical example. And the world of Ready Player One is like, it's half a particular person's nostalgia. It is this fictional character's nostalgia slash Ernest Cline, the author's nostalgia as tweaked by Steven Spielberg. Right. Um, but it's also then presumably these the people using the Oasis, this fictional, this VR world, it's presumably their nostalgia and their childhood right. as well. And that doesn't really make doesn't sense. It doesn't really make sense. Right. We should explain. If you haven't seen Ready Player One, right, it's 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 set in a future. I think the year is like 2045, and it's set in this world where this virtual reality landscape exists called the Oasis, where you can go in there and basically be anyone, do anything you want to do, which mostly involves like video gaming, like death matches and surfing and racing games and all these sorts of things. But for some reason, even though it's the year 2045, all of the references, all of the sort of fixations of the people in that are using the Oasis are mostly 80s and 90s. There's a lot of 90s in there, yes, too. I haven't more read the book. 90s. I have read the book. Right. It definitely has been updated a bit more and like opened up a bit more, the right. references. It was to... more like sort of like old video games, as I understand it. Yeah. the And uh, some movies. Yes. The book very much kind of reflects Ernest Cline, the author's taste, as like a guy who was a teenager in the 80s in the Midwest. Right. Uh, you know, his particular 
music that he liked and the video games that he played and right. the movies that he memorized and the TV that he watched. Right. You know? It's 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 like on the one hand it's incredibly canny in terms of selling something because he's making it for an audience like himself that's going to love those references. From a plot perspective, it really doesn't make sense that people in 2045 are so into like adventure on Atari. Like, why would they care? Other than you know, they they try to explain it that the creator of the Oasis loved this stuff and that therefore they are obsessed with it because they're trying to figure out his will and yada 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 yada. Yeah. Well, so I I was looking through the references and yes, I wanted to so pick some I. that struck me oh but before we also do this the, the okay. ones that kind of jumped out to me as like maybe weird incongruous or, yes okay let's hear but but before we do this also i did want to say for all that the iron giant like the iron giant being uh this weapon annoyed me in the movie yes uh you know one of the biggest set pieces and clearly i would say the best part of the movie is also a repurposing of a classic work of cinema absolutely uh for ways that are totally not what the creator would have intended for sure and it's delightful it's like blasphemously delightful of, yes, yes. My, that's a good way to put it, it was my yes. absolutely my favorite part of the movie right which is like the potential i think for the like best and worst parts of ready player one which is like the same thing uh, repurposing of right. of references uh can be horrible and can be kind mm. of wonderful well i mean i uh, not to get off on too much of a tangent but i mean that is kind of remix culture in a nutshell right like mm -hmm. people love you love a song that samples a song from the past and the new song you could love or you could hate and the the creator might have nothing to do the original creator might have nothing to do with it and they might not like the new song that becomes a huge hit they may have nothing to do with it they may have no, no control over it yep the iron giant may become a death laser i don't it's, it's, it's sort of the same thing well i wanted to point out for my first reference okay uh daito one of the two characters from different parts of asia who are friends of it doesn't really matter. Uh, <laughs> they're side characters. Yes. Uh, one of them uh, in fulfilling the race that is the first challenge in Ready Player One. Mm -hmm. uh, he makes it to the end with his car like on fire. But what car is that, Matt? It is a 1977 Pontiac Firebird Trans Am. Oh. As driven by Burt Reynolds yeah, this is Smokey and the Bandit. This is a reference I actually did not spot myself until yes. I saw it on on, uh, on IMDb. And I have to say, that is one of the weirder references right. to be thrown into this uh, melange of, of different kind of uh, pop culture, you know, bits and pieces that get thrown in here. It's not, I would say, a, like kind of... Within the realms of a classically nerdy movie, though I absolutely accept that it is a movie that people feel nostalgia for, it feels like the kind of movie that uh, was maybe almost nostalgic when it was made. Mm. <laughs> you know, like it's this kind of cozy uh, movie about um, this kind of fictionalized vision of the South and of trucking and of uh, this kind of, I don't know, like good old boy racing movie like across the country or yep. half the country uh if you have not seen it this is the 1977 film starring burt reynolds and sally field i think they became an item during the filming of this movie i believe you're correct directorial debut of hal needham mm -hmm. who was a stuntman and it is mostly a movie about driving mm -hmm. uh, it is a movie about how the bandit played by burt reynolds takes a bet to bootleg a, a truck full of Coors beer, the finest beer available in the U.S. at the time, I guess, uh, <laughs> had a very good reputation. <laughs> you could not buy it uh, to the uh, anywhere to the, the east of the Mississippi. Beer. Yeah. So these these rich uh, dudes in uh, in Atlanta make a bet with Bandit to go out to Texas, Texarkana, buy uh, a truck full of Coors. And then race it back uh, to Atlanta against all regulations, right? So that these guys can have a party and and enjoy their cores. Makes sense. That's and that's it. That's, that's the, the movie. The whole movie is uh, is the bandit and his friend uh, driving out and then incurring the wrath of various uh, you know uh, highwaymen who try to patrolmen who try to chase him down, and then one in particular on the way back. Uh, as as he also picks up uh, Sally Field as a runaway bride, 
But mostly, I mean, there's for a movie that is about a car chase, really, there's so little urgency to Smokey and the Bandit. Mm-hmm. You know, they uh, they keep stopping for little adventures or to have an assignation uh, in which he takes his hat off. The only reason that he'll ever take his hat off, the Bandit. Um, but there's a, the kind of like warm coziness of this movie uh, in which... All of the all of the characters along the road road come out to help the bandit uh, because he's such a local legend, you know, including the sex workers and including the funeral procession and including uh, fellow truckers uh, and the and the teens that all like help him out by blocking all the cops. Everyone, no matter who they are along the road, they all hate the cops. Um, but I, you know, I, it was it's it's such a kind of pleasure to watch because it's so little of a movie in terms of story, mm-hmm. and so much of a movie just in terms of its atmosphere. And watching its two main characters just delight in each other yeah. as like two kind of show offy, uh, impulsive people who seem weirdly perfect for each other. Um, and I don't really understand how it fits into Ready Player One, except that maybe they just needed another they famous, needed a famous ve- car. vehicle. I think you're it, right. Yes. And there are only so many fast cars in the history of movies that might be recognizable. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe Daito was also a huge <laughs> Burt Reynolds fan. There are much weirder things in the world. I mean, it is a very pleasurable movie. Yes. I enjoy Smokey and the Bandit. Yes. And it's not a movie that I'm nostalgic for because I never saw it as a kid. I only saw it a couple of years ago for the first time. And I thought this is incredibly delightful because everyone in the movie is having fun. Everyone's having a great time. Great time. But I think that when you look at, say, like David Gordon Green's movies and like the types when he has this kind of like pang for, I think, like making a 70s Burt Reynolds movie. Yeah. Or when you look at Logan Lucky. Which, you know, feels in some ways like it has aspirations towards being a 70s Burt Reynolds movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it, the feel of a movie like this has seeped into, uh, even though there's not a lot of space for it, uh, for a movie like this right now, there is like a longing for for in some filmmakers to just try and figure out a way to, to do something like this. It's not easy. It looks easy. It looks easy. But it is not. It is not. In some ways, it's easier to sign on to a Ready Player One than mm. it is to to try and make something like this now. But that is Smokey and the Bandit. It is available for rent. So in the Oasis in Ready Player One, there are many vehicles and weapons and references to other movies. And then sometimes we just straight up see characters from other movies and within this universe of Ready Player One, the idea is these are the, these are avatars. People have chosen to embody within this virtual world these other existing fictional characters. And I thought that was one of the more realistic parts of the movie because I absolutely believe that if VR existed as it does in the Oasis in this movie, people would do this. People would not only want to look like their favorite characters, they would want to act like them. They would want to become them, even like slasher horror film villains, for example. I absolutely thought that was 100% true to life. I think a lot of people, even some we would qualify as mentally healthy, would kind of get off on pretending to be their favorite horror movie bad guy slaughtering people free of any real world repercussions. And one such horror movie bad guy who makes a very prominent cameo in Ready Player One is Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th franchise. And maybe it it, because it was Friday the 13th last week when we are recording this, I thought, why not recommend a Friday the 13th movie? I have previously recommended my favorite film in the series, uh, Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Mm. That uh, that came up on a previous episode during a Behind the 8-Ball segment. So instead, I went with my second favorite Jason movie, which is Friday the 13th, colon, the final chapter, which in true schlock horror fashion was not the final chapter. In fact, there's like seven or eight more movies after <laughs> it so far. Uh, the final chapter was actually the fourth film in the series. And for my money, it is the best straight horror movie among the Friday the 13th oeuvre, the uh, the one that I like even more. Jason Lives is much more tongue-in-cheek. It's kind of a horror spoof. It's basically Scream a full decade before that movie was made. The final chapter is really a straight-ahead slasher movie. Scary, gross, and very effective in its own way. And it is also the movie in the franchise that really like cemented the formula that would carry Jason from this point basically until the end. Um, uh, the first movie... 
spoiler alert, didn't even have Jason Voorhees as the killer. In the second movie, uh, he has a flannel shirt and a bag over his head the whole time. Very scary. Mm. Very scary. Surprisingly, that look didn't last. It's the third movie where he first got the hockey mask. And then this movie, Final Chapter, is really where they brought it all together with very uh, inventive and gory kills. Uh, practical makeup master Tom Savini was the designer of all the special effects in this film, and he outdid himself. They are super gnarly. And you also have a very good cast of young actors, including Corey Feldman and a young pre-Back to the Future Crispin Glover, who in probably the film's most famous or at least most memed, internet memed scene, uh, dances to 80s music. Have you ever seen his dance in Friday the 13th? I have not. Oh, I'll show it. We're going to look it up after this segment okay. and you're going to laugh because <laughs> it is quite a thing. Is this movie sleazy? You betcha. Jason kills a guy who's swimming by stabbing him in the crotch with a harpoon gun. Uh, this movie, a picture of it, any still really from it could be used in the dictionary next to the definition of the word sleaze, but it is well-made sleaze. And in terms of Ready Player One, getting back to the again, this is absolutely something I I am a little nostalgic for. Uh, my parents were fairly protective of me when it came to adult content in movies. And so the first time I ever saw a horror movie was at a sleepover, and I vividly remembered it. it wasn't this particular Friday the 13th. It was part seven, The New Blood. That's the one where they had – there's the – girl with the telekinetic powers allison and that movie is not very good but to this day i remember vividly watching it at jason weiner's house wow that guy running crazy over there no rules in his basement just a bunch of dorks and sleeping bags (laughs) up at 2 30 in the morning watching a vhs tape someone rented of friday the 13th part 7 the new blood and maybe it is weird to be nostalgic for an unstoppable zombie killer who dresses like a janitor who's also really into hockey but i am And while I would not recommend a lot of the movies in the Friday the 13th franchise, if you are looking for this kind of movie, I think the best one, at least that's like a straight, non-winking horror movie, is the final chapter. And uh, I don't think I mentioned earlier, it is available right now for rent or it is also available on Stars. Friday the 13th, the final chapter. So one of the strange things about Ready Player One's references is that, well, one, they're being chosen in part by someone who has participated in making a lot of the movies that the the kind of era of the book would want to reference. But also that because this is a movie being produced by Giant Studio, it is subject to corporate licensing. And yes. so a lot of the references that get chosen kind Warner of depends. Brothers. Yes. Or like whatever, whoever they could get um, the relationships with as well. Right. Uh, and I did think it was interesting in one of the like kind of more prominent references uh the the type the incarnation of this character that they chose that reference would be king kong who features prominently in the race that i talked about before which is like the first challenge uh king kong is the the creation that or the character that people who get to the end of the race have to deal with uh and he's uh you know kind of like playing a goalie at the end of the race for anyone who makes it that far. But King, the King Kong who is in ready player one is not, I think pretty clearly the 1933 King Kong who tends to stand on his back two legs and kind of stand up more like a person. He is the Peter Jackson King Kong. He is the 2005 uh, version of, of the giant ape. And, and there's something kind of funny about that. Uh, to be like, <laughs> uh, in the future, who is the King Kong that we remember? Not the 1933 classic. Right. Not Kong Skull, Skull Island. Island. Nope. There is no all. memory of Kong Skull Island no, in the that? future. It got wiped out. Yep. It is only the 2005 version that has survived. Right. Um, and I do think the 2005 film is very good. Uh, you can stream it on Netflix right now. It is in kind of uh, true Peter Jackson form. And I think it's funny to kind of miss Peter Jackson since it's not like he really went away, but he's been making movies that I had not a great deal of interest in for the past few years. Um, But this King Kong is, you know, kind of half a horror movie in addition to all of the kind of classic adventure stuff and the classic Twas Beauty That Killed the Beast uh, storyline. There's a reason that that they're not going with a Kong Skull Island version of King Kong, Uh, you know, in updating King Kong for good for good uh, reason. These new the new movie kind of tried to 
deal with or sand away or kind of reverse a lot of the originals uh, aspects that haven't aged very well, including, you know, the savage natives who kidnap. Yeah, a little racist there. Uh, The whole idea of King Kong as this kind of like figment of fear of this like brawny other from, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. uh, this kind of bestial other who captures the blonde woman, runs off with her, falls in love with her. Right. Uh, You know, no, the Peter, uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong does not try and send off any of those edges. It kind of just leans into them until it becomes this like outsized creation. The movie is definitely too long. I think that's fair to say. Oh yeah. Uh, and I think that some of the effects who are, which are really like, you know, prime at their time have not aged so well. But I do think that the things that Peter Jackson does well in terms of just like world bi- building and visuals have. And King Kong, you know, as acted in motion capture by Andy Serkis, is a great creation. Like he is this really kind of convincingly expressive, uh, alive, thoughtful creation, in addition to being a scary one. Uh, and while I still mostly love in this movie the giant uh, kind of Freudian looking insects eating people uh i i do love uh this version of king kong as well and the particular the the moment when like way into the movie um when when he has broken free and is running through new york uh he and Anne, played by naomi watts have that moment on the ice uh you know in central park very poorly chosen i think uh, in terms of just should have gotten away <laughs> but but it's it's a like enchanting moment uh, and so, you know, if I, this is a movie that I don't feel like people talk about that much, Never. Uh, which is why also seeing it in Ready Player One being, uh, chosen by either Spielberg's personal connection to Jackson or right. their buddies, their that buddies, might be the reason, uh, or corporate synergy of whatever sort, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, someone can choose to have it live on in, in, you know, global memory this clearly, uh, I kind of appreciate that. You know, if, if, if Ready Player One is going to conjure up a world of kind of artificial nostalgia like this, then why not lean into it and have mm. someone really, you know, push hard for their personal favorites? Um, so King Kong streaming on Netflix right now. The only other thing I would say about it is that it's, that movie is itself nostalgic because, sure. you know, it's like Peter Jackson's like ultimate vision of the movie he loved as a kid, but mm-hmm. like not as good as it was in his mind, like trying to make the King Kong he imagined as a kid. Right. But also also wanting to make it bigger and better and well, newer. Exactly, but like, you're right. Make it like the movie that it should have been all along and like embracing this thing that he loved as a kid. So in a way, it's like the most fitting King Kong to put in a movie about nostalgia. Because it's someone looking back for something they can never quite grasp. Exactly. Mm, Fair enough. All right. I have a hard time believing it, but apparently I have somehow never mentioned my second pick on the podcast before. It is Last Action Hero, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film directed by John McTiernan. It's probably in Ready Player One, even though this is not a movie people are generally nostalgic for because it was co-written by one of the writers of Ready Player One. So maybe he's nostalgic for it specifically. (laughs) He's nostalgic for the paycheck he got. It's uh, Zach Penn. He wrote the story for uh, Last Action Hero before the screenplay was reworked by Shane Black. And at the time, Last Action Hero looked like it was going to be this dream team of early 90s blockbuster filmmakers. You had Shane Black at the absolute hottest he ever was in his career after the first couple of Lethal Weapon films. You had John McTiernan coming off of Predator and Die Hard and Hunt for Red October. And you had Schwarzenegger, who had made the improbable transition from evil robot in The Terminator to kind-hearted robot who's the champion of children in Terminator 2. A movie that is also referenced in Ready Player One. That is correct. It is. Uh, But that movie I have mentioned on this, on on the podcast, not surprisingly. So that's why we are doing Last Action Hero. So T2 and a couple of comedies Schwarzenegger made in the late 80s and early 90s, Kindergarten Cop and Twins, basically opened him up to this whole younger, new audience, and Last Action Hero seems like it was made as a concerted effort on his part to actively like court that family blockbuster audience that he had already cultivated. He plays Jack Slater, the title character in a string of popular action movies, whose world, fictional world, is intruded upon in Purple Rose of Cairo-esque fashion, 
by this magical ticket, which winds up in the hands of Danny Madigan, this little boy who's played by Austin O'Brien. He uses this ticket to step into the movie screen in his local theater and then join Jack Slater on an adventure. And then later, Slater and Danny exit the movie and come into the quote-unquote real world. And much of the comedy is about the friction between how things work in the movies, where guns never have to be reloaded and action heroes never get heard and you can punch through a pane of glass with your bare hands versus how things work in the real world where it's rainy and cold and you have bills to pay and your mom's never around because she's working and it's very easy to hurt yourself uh, and so on and so forth. It's a very interesting premise for an action film and it gets even more interesting when Arnold Schwarzenegger shows up in a second role as himself, as the guy, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who plays Jack Slater in all the movies and the fictional Jack Slater actually confronts quote unquote Arnold Schwarzenegger and accuses him of being a bad guy. It's a scene that I I still think is maybe the most interesting interesting thing Schwarzenegger has ever done. Um it's particularly because this is a guy who consistently has played these fictional heroes, these superheroes practically, who is in real life, although he was the governor of a state for a couple of years, basically a screw up, you know, ruined his marriage and all these sorts of things. Sure. So I think all of that is super, super interesting. The main problem with the movie is Austin O'Brien. No offense to this adorable child who is very annoying and very obnoxious. <laughs> if I had to guess, I would assume that the movie was written like, you know, we're going to get Macaulay Culkin because this is made right after Home Alone. He was at the height of his sort of fame. And then they couldn't get him. And so they went a long way down the list until they found this kid. He's just not very good. He's not very interesting. Um, but the movie is worth seeing in spite of him. And regarding how it fits with Ready Player One, they definitely have some, some shared themes, which could be partly because they are co-written by the same guy. These are both movies about people who literally become part of the popular culture they love. They're both partly critiques of this kind of obsessive, borderline deranged fandom. They're about how fantasies are fun, but they can be dangerous because they distract us from the way the real world works. On the other hand, both of the movie's messages are very severely undercut by the fact that the fictional worlds are fun in both movies and beautiful and well shot and well made. And... The real world in both movies is dingy and dirty and overcrowded. And so you're told that we should want to live in the real world while being given extensive evidence that it's way more fun to live in, whether it's virtual reality or fiction in, in either case. So it's sort of this weird disconnect. And I think it's interesting that kind of both movies have that sort of same problem with what they're trying to say, I think. Plus, Last Action Hero was expected to be like the hit of the summer of 1993 because of its killer pedigree, and then it got destroyed at the box office. Do you know by what film, Allison? I do not. By Jurassic Park. Wow. A film directed by Steven Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. So there are a lot of ways in which these two films are actually simpatico. I actually think they would make an excellent and very interesting, if flawed, double feature uh, when Ready Player One is out on home video eventually. So that is Last Action Hero. It is available right now for rent or on Showtime. All right, we haven't seen any new movies to talk about. Avengers doesn't screen until next week when we are recording this. We haven't seen it yet. And I, I didn't see I Feel Pretty. We haven't seen I Feel Pretty, which yeah. is the new Amy Schumer comedy. So let's just go right to Behind the Eight Ball. That's the segment we do at the end of each show where we give you some new releases on streaming. We give you some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film we each have chosen blindly by number from one another's my list on Netflix. Allison, who's going first this time? I'm going first. All right. So let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay. New to Tubi TV recently is 24-Hour Party People, a great favorite of mine. The 2002 film uh, from Michael Winterbottom, uh, Steve Coogan playing Tony Wilson, uh, head of Factory Records, and the whole Madchester scene of the kind of late 70s and the 80s up in Manchester. And also just a very 
clever and funny self-referential film in which characters speak to the camera and challenge the narrative that's going on that becomes kind of a movie about biopics in that, you know, Steve Coogan's character is always trying to tell you what his character's grand arc is. And the movie keeps failing to really comply with that. Uh, I love it. It's free on 2B TV with ads. You should check it out. New to Amazon is Saturday Church. This is a 2017 film that I think was at Tribeca last year. Uh, Damon Cardassus's film about a 14-year-old in New York who finds sanctuary at this group for uh, LGBT youth and I guess maybe not just youth um, at a church every Saturday. Uh, I pointed out in particular because if you are interested in Ryan Murphy's uh, upcoming FX series Pose about the kind of ball scene and voguing, um, the whole kind of uh, scene that was documented in Paris is Burning, that a lot of the same actors uh, who are stars of Pose appear in Saturday Church. So if you want to see them before the series starts, you can find it, this film streaming on Amazon. And finally, on Hulu is Lost in Space. You may have noticed that uh, Netflix did its own Lost in Space recently. Mm -hmm. I have not looked at it yet. Mm. They're also streaming the 90s movie, they are not. Uh, they absolutely are. Oh, boy. Yes. The one where Gary Oldman gets turned into a spider person, uh, as you do. It Matt happens. LeBlanc is in there. Matt LeBlanc is in there. Mm-hmm. Mostly what I remember about it. Mostly I remember the spider. <laughs> Had a really good pinball game, I can tell you that. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that was a movie that happened. But if you want <laughs> if you want to uh, indulge in the original Lost in Space, oh. uh, it's on Hulu. Uh, all 80-something episodes are there. The started in black and white, went to color. Um, so yeah, you can do it. You could basically lock yourself away for several weeks or at least a full week. You could get lost. Like, lost in, in Lost, lost in, space. in Space. Yes. Uh, don't do that to yourself, though. You know, take time to go outside. Self-care. Yes. Uh, but that is on Hulu. Okay. How about two listener recommendations? Okay. We bought, got uh, two ones from Amy and one from Reed, who are both uh, in the same town in North Carolina. So I'm going to assume the same household. Uh-huh. Uh, the first one is from Amy, who writes, I would like to recommend the 2014 Supernatural Romance Spring. Set in a beautifully shot Italy, a young American falls in love with a beautiful, quaint seaside village and, more importantly, the mesmerizing young woman played by Nadia Hilker. Or rather, she seems like a young woman, but has a supernatural secret which threatens to drive Lou Taylor Pucci's Evan away or kill him if he stays. To be honest, I would gladly face mortal danger to spend a summer in that village with that woman. It's also very romantic and idyllic. Um, so that is, I think, from Amy. The second recommendation is, I think, from Reed, who recommends They Look Like People, which is streaming on Netflix and Amazon. Reed writes, I found out about this small horror gem from the Flophouse podcast, uh, those guys over there, uh, and always sing its praises to horror fans. Two old college buddies meet when one of them is on the run from a demon and possibly preparing to thwart a demon-fueled apocalypse, possibly. A great film about testing the limits of friendship with some real creepy, haunting scenes. Uh, so thank you for that, Reed. All right, and how about one film chosen by the by now from your list? You gave me number fifteen. That is Veronica, which Veronica. is another horror film. Uh, it's one from Paco Plaza, who directed Wreck and Wreck Two. Uh, some very scary Spanish horror films uh, that were remade into slightly less scary American horror films. Uh, but this one is set in Madrid in the 19- early 1990s, uh, and it has a teen girl minding her younger siblings in, a ho- in, a- in her home um, after holding a seance at school and something evil maybe enters their apartment. It's apparently like based on this true story that happened uh, mm-hmm. where something bad happened after a girl used a Ouija board. So I hate when that happens. Yeah, I got to be careful with that. But um, that is Veronica, and it is number 15 on my my list. It's on Netflix. Okay. All right, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Okay, give me three new releases. Okay. First up on Netflix is... Kodachrome, a Netflix original, or at least an acquisition Netflix made, 
at uh, Toronto last year that I actually liked. It's a drama starring Jason Sudeikis and a very good Ed Harris as an estranged father and son who go on a road trip together when Ed Harris's character is dying to go get some undeveloped roles of Kodachrome film developed at the last place in America that is still developing Kodachrome before they close forever. And while this story and the relationship is fiction, the place is, or spoiler alert, was real. The movie is inspired by a New York Times story about this place that closed a few years ago that was like the last place that developed um, this kind of film. Uh, the movie is not, you know, revelatory. Um, it's a It's a fairly standard road trip movie in some ways road trip movies tend to be pretty formulaic but i thought Ed harris was really really outstanding in this movie probably won't get any awards consideration one because the movie is coming out in april and and two because it's a netflix movie and i think probably is just disqualified at that point but he's really really good in this movie and if you're a fan of his uh for sure this is worth checking out so that's kodachrome on netflix Next up, I want to give a crossover nod to our listeners who also enjoy our sister podcast, Film Spotting, who are enjoying their, I think, recently wrapped up Vincent Minnelli marathon, uh, to let them know that Filmstrunk currently has a whole section of movies dedicated to Vincent Minnelli. A lot of my favorite Vincent Minnelli movies, uh, have been on Filmstruck for a while. Among the ones that were recently added, uh, I will recommend Lust for Life, a 1956 biopic of painter Vincent Van Gogh, featuring a typically very intense performance from Kirk Douglas in the lead role. And Vince Minnelli was such a, a bold director in terms of his use of color uh, that he is really just a perfect inspired choice to make a film about a painter. So a better than average biopic lust for life available on Filmstruck. Finally, the movie I want to be watching this week is the unauthorized save by the bell story, which is available now on Hulu. This is a fairly recent lifetime movie about the sordid details of the life on the set of the classic 90s television show Saved by the Bell. Frankly, there should have been a Saved by the Bell reference in Ready Player One. If they're nostalgic for the 90s, yeah. that's really kind of a key text. There's not a ton of TV in there. No, that's which true. Which is mysterious. That is true. Well, people don't like television. It's definitely not in ascendance. No. Um, so Saved by the Bell, yeah, it seemed like a very wholesome, family-friendly sitcom for children. But in fact, apparently it was a den of sin, the likes of which has never been before seen in Hollywood or something. I haven't seen this movie, um, much to my chagrin, but I am dying to watch it because it just cracks me up to no end that they made the unauthorized Saved by the Bell story. And I have seen every episode of Saved by the Bell, for sure. The original recipe, say, but not the new class. Oh, yeah. That's garbage. Well, of course. Talking about Does the it even need to be said? No, I, I, hopefully not. But that is the unauthorized Saved by the Bell story, which is now streaming on Hulu. Okay. Give me two listener recommendations. Our first comes from Chris. Chris writes, as always, big fan of the podcast, and I wanted to send along a streaming recommendation. I had once sent you a recommendation for Kelly Reichert's Night Moves streaming on Hulu, and it looks like they are still in the Kelly Reichert business as Meeks Cutoff and Wendy and Lucy are streaming there as well. Kelly Reichert is a filmmaker I really enjoy because of the simple stories she tells and the emo emotional depth in them. I hope more people can appreciate her work with these movies now available. So that's a recommendation for Meeks Cutoff and Wendy and Lucy, two excellent films streaming on Hulu. And that was a recommendation from Chris. Thank you, Chris. Our next recommendation comes from Justin in Portland, Oregon. Justin writes, this will act as a double recommendation. Since I don't think I would have known about either film had it not been for your show. I caught up with Los Angeles Plays Itself based on one of your recommendations and thought it was great. But the film I really wanted to recommend, which I don't think I've heard mentioned on your show, was used as part of a sequence in Los Angeles Plays Itself, and it really caught my eye. 
leading me to rent it on Netflix. That film is Jim Jarmusch's Night on Earth, which tells the story of five cab rides all taking place at the same time in different parts of the world. The interesting use of time zones helps create the feeling that we're moving later and later into the night while still reminding us that all five stories are taking place at the exact same time. It's a movie that's all about how people connect with each other or fail to. And it gets a little more raw and intense as we move from one story to the next. Once it's over, you've taken a seamless trip from a sunny evening in L.A. to a bleak Helsinki morning with stops along the way. Couldn't believe that both of these films flew under my radar for so long. So I hope this recommendation will have others like me searching them out. So that is a recommendation for Los Angeles Plays Itself and Night on Earth. That was from Justin. Thank you, Justin. All right. Give me one chosen blindly from your my list. You gave me number 17, so I had to count all the way to 17. That was brutal. Uh, Number 17 on my my list is Our Souls at Night. Uh, Our Souls at Night, another Netflix film. After widowed neighbors Addie and Lewis begin sleeping in bed together platonically to alleviate their loneliness, a real romance begins to blossom. I believe the pair, it's Robert Redford and Jane Fonda, I mm-hmm. believe. I have not watched this one. Um, it was written by Scott Neustadter and Michael H. Weber, who are writers I like. They did um, 500 Days of Summer. They did recently The Disaster Artist. So it's sort of an odd fit for them because they usually tend to write about younger people. This is obviously based on that cast, a, a movie about uh, some older characters. Have you seen it, Allison? Nope. No, I don't know anyone who has. Maybe someone will write in and tell us they have and tell me if I should bump it up my my list. I do enjoy the title. Our Souls at Night. It has a grandeur to it. Our Souls at Night. Our Souls at Night. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> that's, that's, that's my pick. That's my my list pick. Uh, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. Three very interesting films here. Very diverse set of films. I have the first one here. It is available now on Hulu, and it is called Loving Vincent. The 2017 uh, – it's described here as an experimental animated biographical drama film about the life of painter Vincent van Gogh. There's a lot of Vincent van Gogh on this podcast here. Maybe we could talk about Lust for Life some more if this was the winner. Anyway, it's a film about Vincent van Gogh. It's about the circumstances of his death. It is a uh, quote-unquote fully painted animated feature. A Polish production funded by the Polish Film Institute, partly funded through a Kickstarter campaign. Very critically acclaimed film. Mm-hmm. Not sure quite what else to say about it. We could do two animated films in a row. I don't think that might be unprecedented. Uh, that would be cool. I would uh, like to do that. That would be unusual on this podcast, but it, it is an option. Sure. So that is option number one. Loving Vincent, available now on Hulu. Option number two is also now streaming on Hulu. It is Thelma, which is a 2017 Norwegian film from, uh, I think it's Joachim Trier, Mm -hmm. uh, who has made some films I've really liked, uh, including Reprise in particular, but also Oslo, August 31st, both uh, great films. I didn't love his English language debut, debut, which was Louder Than Bombs, as much, but it did have a great cast. Uh, This is him trying something a little different. It is kind of uh, in the realm of supernatural drama and also some horror. And it's about a young woman who leaves her kind of very religious and strict household to go to school in Oslo and meets and falls in love with this uh, other woman and then starts discovering maybe some mysterious powers. Uh, I have not seen this movie. Have you, Matt? I have not. Uh, it was one that I think a lot of people were fans of. It kind of flew under the radar last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think this would be a great opportunity for us to get to see it. Yes. Uh, and I don't know. There's a whole realm of different things I think we could talk about uh, based on that premise. But I'm not going to say them now because I'm always afraid that I'm going to suggest something we've already done. <laughs> Because we keep terrible records of what we have already done. Yes. And we've done 162 of these. Yes. All right. Well, that is your second choice. Thelma streaming on Hulu. All right. Our third option, God help us, is The Week Of, which is going to be streaming on Netflix. This is the latest film from Adam Sandler. It is the fourth, and as is described here, the fourth and final in the first <laughs> four-film deal between Adam Sandler's company and Netflix. It will be available on Netflix on April 27th. 
The premise is the film takes place in the week leading up to Adam Sandler and Chris Rock's characters, children's getting married. So two, two families coming together. The father of the bride and the father of the groom are Adam Sandler and Chris Rock. Uh, Rachel Dratch is also in the film. Steve Buscemi is also in the film. I would say the reason to be hopeful that this movie is a cut above some of the other Adam Sandler Netflix movies or Adam Sandler movies in general when he's not working with a a Paul Thomas Anderson or a Noah Baumbach or something sure. like that is that this movie is directed by – it's actually the feature directorial debut – and co-written by Robert Smigel, mm. who is a very talented, very funny man. Of course, the uh, the creator of the voice of Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, a longtime collaborator of Sandler's. They've worked together on a lot of movies, including some of his better movies and some of his not so great movies. But I think Robert Smigel is a, a genuinely funny, very, very talented guy. I actually didn't realize until just recently that he directed this and co-wrote it with Adam Sandler. So to me, that's a that's a cause for curiosity and hope. Um, I, I would be disappointed. You know, like I'm never, I guess, that disappointed or shocked when an Adam Sandler movie isn't great. Right. But I'm going to be more disappointed if this one isn't just because Robert Smigel is the guy sort of uh, behind the camera here. And I'm very curious to see what he does as a first time director. So that's option number three. The week of streaming on Netflix on April 27th. Okay, now it's all up to you. Tell us which of these streaming movies we should review. Okay, and now it's all up to you. Tell us which of these streaming movies we should review on the next episode by voting in the poll that's at the bottom of the page over at filmspottingsvu.com. We'll also post links to the poll on our social media feeds. We're at Facebook and Twitter at filmspottingsvu. You've got until Monday, April 30th at noon to vote. That's when we'll announce the winner. And that gives you about a week if you want to watch it in advance before our next episode comes out on Tuesday, May 8th. In addition to being able to vote at filmspottingsvu.com, it's also where you can find our episode archive complete with links to where you can stream or rent all the titles we mention on the show. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review you pick. But until then, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore at Matt Singer. And you should definitely also follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we drop links throughout the day to things that are new to streaming that you might want to know about. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs>